Hello and welcome to the Monarch Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, John Sillis. I just want to say a quick thank you to everyone who continues to listen and support this podcast. We're now being listened to in 28 different countries, which is incredible for such a niche podcast such as this. Thank you once again for your continued support and please continue to share this podcast so we can continue to grow and get this information out to individuals and organizations. On this week's episode, I'm joined by Annette Sapp. Annette is a 16-year veteran of the fire service. She currently holds the rank of lieutenant and owns Fire SQ Fitness, a coaching business dedicated to the physical and mental health and wellness of firefighters worldwide. She earned her master's degree in biochemistry and molecular biology from the University of South Dakota School of Medicine and is also credentialed with NSA as a CSCS and a TSAC facilitator. She was also recently named to the Illinois Senate Task Force, focused on mitigating first responder suicide. In addition to her work serving within the fire service, Annette is an adjunct faculty at the University of Denver in the Graduate Program for Sports Coaching and is a proud member of the panel of experts who recently reviewed and revised the TSAC Practitioner course for the NSCA. In this episode, Annette talks about her transition from the fitness industry to the fire service, the current state of mental health in firefighters, and shares her own story with us, how to build resilience within the firefighters, and the biggest obstacles to implementing a wellness program into fire departments. Good afternoon, Annette, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This is a great opportunity. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you very much for taking time out of your schedule. I know you're very, very busy. And I've also got to say a special thanks to Kate Colvin once again, just for helping set this up and introducing us. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much, Kate. I appreciate you. Obviously, and I mean, you've had the chance to chat a little bit off air as well, and I'm familiar with some of your work with your business as well. But for anyone who hasn't come across you and your work, can you just give us a little bit of an overview of, you know, where your career started out and where you're currently at? Sure. My, uh, my career path makes absolutely no sense. It is an absolutely beautiful mess that has put me in the perfect spot to do what I do uh, quite elegantly, I would say. Uh, I have a long history in science. I took science prep courses in high school and then I got a bachelor's degree in biology and then followed that up with, I was actually in a PhD program for biochemistry and molecular biology. And even though they didn't have a master's program at the time, I I petitioned to actually graduate with a master's degree. So I was one of the first people to graduate with a master's degree in biochemistry from my school. And I did some research for a few years and I really realized that I wasn't really well suited to working in a lab. And so concurrently I had been teaching group exercise classes. I think that's a common theme. I heard that from Kelly Kennedy too. teaching group exercise classes, doing a bit of personal training, health and wellness, things like that. And I began to realize that that truly was the trajectory of where I wanted to take my life. And so I packed up my bags and I moved from small town, South Dakota to the suburbs of Chicago in 1997. And I've been here ever since. And I had some great opportunities in Chicago. I worked for some really top-notch health clubs downtown. And I worked for a very large health and wellness center out in the suburbs. Um, Sometime during that time, I believe it was the early 2000s, I became a master instructor for Johnny G in the spinning program. And so I got the opportunity to travel. I won't say the world, I never got to go international, but I got the opportunity to travel the country teaching the spinning program to instructors. And I was having a great time. 
I was loving training my clients, making an impact on people's lives. And then I just realized one day I really needed to grow up and get a big girl job because although I was making great money, I had no benefits. Mm -hmm. So I had no health insurance. I had no paid time off. I had no sick time. And so, um, the, the story of my sort of law enforcement aspirations really isn't, doesn't fit well into this discussion today, but I did apply to a, a couple of different federal law enforcement agencies. And ultimately, I settled on the fire department rather than law enforcement. So in 2004, I raised my right hand, I swore my oath, and I've been at the same small fire protection district for the last 16 years. And now I hold the rank of lieutenant on an engine company. That's a mess, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's nice. It's nice, diverse uh, period throughout all that. So obviously you had quite a big background within health, fitness and wellness. And then you said, obviously, you wanted to go get yourself uh, another job that had some more of the benefits packages for you. So what was it that drove you down, you know, the avenue of wanting to work with, within like first responders? So you said there about initially trying for law enforcement and then making the move to fire. What was it that made you want to go down that path, particularly as opposed to, say, more of a corporate job or something like that? I think that once you've been in science and you've experienced that freedom of you can come in at 9 a.m. and start your experiments and go eat lunch and come back and you might still be there at 2 a.m., mm -hmm. but nobody's punching the clock from 9 to 5 and making sure you're at your desk. I think once you've had a taste for that, you're never going to be able to have a, a corporate job. The other thing is I think I truly... Um, I think there is what I call the servant heart. They're just a subpopulation of people that truly want to serve humankind in one respect or another. And so I think that first responders and doctors and nurses in the military, I think that we're all sort of cut from that same cloth. And I really wanted to get into law enforcement, but I think the fire service was a really viable alternative for me. And it just, it worked out great. Nice. And how did you find that transition moving from health, fitness, and wellness into the demands of the fire service? So obviously, coming from that background, you have had a good physical like level of fitness and presence there. What were the other challenges you found making that move into tactical and first responding? I will tell you the biggest challenge that I faced was I was so ill-prepared for the sleep deprivation. Okay. I... I am, uh, I am driven, you know, there, there are those people that function okay on less sleep. And then there's the people that don't, yeah. I'm amongst that pile of people that don't. And so I was very ill prepared for that. Physically, I think I was in a really good, you know, a really good situation. Females, of course, have a little bit more challenges with, um, you know, the upper body strength and things like that, but I'm pretty savvy. I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty able to, you know, move my body in ways that I need to, to get the job done. But mm -hmm. man, that sleep deprivation was, it's no joke. And how have you found now? Have you, have you managed to adapt to it? Or are you still playing that catch up in some regards to it? Man, I am like a cranky two-year-old when I don't get <laughs> enough sleep. It's bad. But the good news is, you know, I've known that. I've known that ever since I was a little kid. And I think my mom knew that. And I think that that's why she was so structured mm -hmm. with the napping and the bedtime. I mean, even in high school, when most kids don't have a bedtime because they're big enough to choose, I had a bedtime. Like my parents were like, get your tushy in bed because we don't want to deal with your bad attitude. 
So I think that I was pretty well set up to have that good sleep discipline. And I was also able to realize that I need to try to recoup that sleep when, you know, I have a rotten night of sleep and then I come home, I'm not going to have a whole day full of activities. I'm going to recoup some sleep. Obviously, Annette, I first saw you and your company on a lot of social media, like advocating for fitness and wellness within firefighters. But I'd say the biggest thing I've seen you push and really talk about there is around the, the mental health and resilience within firefighters within this population group. Um, can you just talk to us a little bit about how you see that right now, the environment for firefighters and their mental health and what's currently being done around that? I, I told you I was ill-prepared for the sleep deprivation. I was also very ill-prepared for the challenges of what, what I would see and the trauma. And I think that in recent years in the United States, maybe the last two to three years, I think that there's been some good awareness coming to the mental health aspect of the fire service. But before we hopped on today, I actually printed some stats. I always refer, it's a company called the Firefighter Behavioral Health Alliance, and they uh, curate stats on firefighter um, EMS and actually dispatcher suicides. And just as of today in the United States, in the year 2020, they've already validate, validated 21 EMS suicides and 66 firefighter suicides. And the really sad fact of the matter is they admit, they think those are underreported by about 45 to 50%. So wow. there's probably many more suicides that are even accounted for. Mm -hmm. And then just really quickly, 2019, we had 120 firefighters and 20 EMS. So a grand total of 140. And that number will continue likely to go up as they validate more suicides from last year. And so I think that even though awareness of mental health issues in the fire service has gone up, unfortunately, the ability for these first responders to manage their lives and to keep themselves in check and to get help when they need help, it, it's, it's becoming a huge obstacle to them. And there are a lot of initiatives out there. There are a lot of companies, there are a lot of treatment centers out there that work on reducing the stigma of reporting an issue. So they try to make that transition of raising your hand and saying, I need help, smooth and soft. Mm -hmm. And and I think that that's wonderful because there are people, like Desmond Tutu said, there are people falling in the stream. But it is 100% my belief that we have to go upstream and find out why they're falling in in the first place. Because, yeah, we can keep fishing them out, but why let them fall in in the first place? So those, again, those initiatives are wonderful and they're fantastic for the people that need help. What I try to work on is the front end of things. And there is very, very compelling data for at least four aspects of general health and wellness that feed into mental health. And the first one we already hit on was sleep. Mm -hmm. People that don't get the proper amount of sleep aren't able to process their trauma and their memories appropriately. They're not able to manage their emotions appropriately. They suffer inordinately higher PTSD. So sleep is, to me, it's the, the number one super secret 
performance and mental health um, additive that we can possibly have. So sleep is number one. The next thing that there's really, really great compelling data for is nutrition. And so people that eat a healthy, balanced diet of fruits and vegetables, proteins, healthy fats, instead of junk, garbage, and trash that comes in a package, washed down with an energy drink, mm -hmm. tend to have better mental health overall. So, so far we have sleep and nutrition. The next one is mindfulness studies or meditation or even breathing, things that calm your brain and your body, very, very important. And then the fourth aspect of it is movement. People that move feel better. And, and anecdotally, you can even ask a firefighter, do you feel better after you go for a walk or after you do a three sets of 20 push-ups? And they say, yeah, I kind of do. But there's, there's research and there's data for it too. So those four things, I truly believe if we taught all of our first responders, police, fire, and military, if we taught them those four things in addition to asking for help when you need help, I think that we could alleviate a huge burden of first responder and military suicide. I'm convinced of it. I 100% agree with you on that, Annette. And I think more and more organizations within military and first responders are taking that proactive approach um, to it as well, which is great to see. I know from our conversations as well, you have your own uh, story to share on this of your own time in the fire service and your own uh, struggles you've had as well. So could you just talk to us a little bit about you know, your own story and your journey through it? Absolutely. And for a while, I was a little bit ashamed of my story because I consider myself to be a smart person, but I didn't see the signs and symptoms in myself. But the reason I didn't is that I was 100% suffering from depression, but I thought depression looked like I don't want to get out of bed in the morning. I don't want to take a bath or shower and I'm going to cry all day. My depression looked different. My depression looked like anger and isolation. And so I was a TNT stick of dynamite with a fuse, you know, two micrometers long. Mm -hmm. um, everything, anything and everything set me off and made me angry and ugly. But let me back up. As a kid growing up, I was a people person. I loved being around people. I loved meeting people. I loved spending time with people. Uh, my mom would always joke that we could go into any small town in the area and I would run into someone I knew and start a conversation. And so that was the person that I was. And even when I was a fitness trainer and strength coach, I was, again, a people person. I knew about my clients' kids and their spouses and their jobs and their vacations. I just, I just wanted to wrap my arms around people all the time. And then in 2004, when I started the fire service, I, I don't know how soon it started, but I want to say it was probably within a year because in the United States, most fire departments, you're on probation for a year. So even though I may have had feelings of anger or I may have had feelings of anxiety or whatever, during that year, you absolutely can't express, you know, you're really not allowed to talk. You just need to keep your mouth shut keep your ears open and do your job and try not to get fired. But really quickly after that, I, I started with that short fuse, anger, being disgusted by people, being angry at people, wondering why people couldn't manage their, their 
business so that we didn't have to go out at two in the morning and take them in for their sniffles. And just every little thing set me off and made me so angry. The other thing that started to happen was um, the things that I really enjoyed doing, like traveling the country for Johnny G and spinning, I just quit. One day I just got pissed off and I quit. Mm-hmm. Um, I stopped personal training at the, the, the health and wellness center under the guise of I'm too busy. And I just started to isolate myself a lot. So the person that was formerly who you would describe as an extrovert started to describe themselves as an introvert. And I know everyone's kind of on that scale somewhere, but I went from one end of the pendulum and I swung as far as you could over to the other side. Fortunately, a couple of things transpired, I think that started to take me out of that sort of vortex of despair. Um, The first one was I started to, you know, now this is after 2010, Uh, probably even maybe 2011 or 2012, I started to reignite my interest in training and coaching. And so I renewed my certifications. I started to go to conferences again. And even though I was at some of the greatest conferences in the world, I didn't meet anybody because I showed up at the airport. I rushed to the hotel. I hid in my room until it was time for the conference to start. I went to the sessions. I hid in my room. It was really, really sad state of affairs, but at least I was engaging in things that I enjoyed again. Um, Another thing happened in 2012. Um, I was off duty. I was at home and there was a house fire in my neighborhood overnight, which actually woke me from a sleep. And I sort of on autopilot ran over there and think, I don't know what I thought I was going to do, save the world. I don't know. But There was fire shooting out the kitchen window and it it was very heavily involved even, you know, when I ran a hundred yards from my house. And so I, I kicked down the front door, kicked in the front door and I took a look and the smoke was just to the ground. It was black, thick and chunky. There was no way that I was going to be able to get in there. So I shut the door and I ran around the side of the house and I ran into a man and he was very big. And he, he looked dazed and confused. And, and now that I look back, he was probably drunk or under the influence of drugs. But I asked him, I said, is this your house? Because he was literally walking beside it. I said, is this your house? And he just looked at me like I was stupid. And so I grabbed him by the collar and I shook him and I said, is this your house? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, is anybody inside? And he said, yeah, my baby cousin. And so at that moment, I thought that there was a baby trapped in the house. And so I became a little frantic, ran around back to the front door, because now my logical brain isn't working at all, ran around back to the front door and the conditions were worse. I couldn't get in, ran around the side again. And now there's two people on the second floor saying that they're going to jump. And they're both very big people. They had no business jumping from a second floor window. Mm -hmm. And so I knew they were safe. And so I told them, just shut your door. I can hear the fire department coming. I hear the sirens. They're going to be here in a second. You're safe. Just stay where you are. And I turned and I saw all of the neighbors in the neighborhood watching it. Like it was some sort of made for TV movie, just watching me running around like a fool. 
And at that point, when I had turned to see the neighbors, then I heard the plop plop of the two people jumping from the second floor. And so now I have two people, both over 300 pounds, both with two broken legs each <laughs> by a window uh -huh. that's gonna break from fire. And so at that point, I just started screaming for all the neighbors to get your butts over here and help me. And a couple of them did and they drug the people away. And then everything happened really quickly after that. I heard the fire engine set the parking brake. Um, the people got drug away from the house. I went and, and I helped as much as I could, you know, get the, the line hooked up to the hydrant. And I talked to the officer, the first officer, and I said, there's a, a baby in the house. And then I just kind of didn't have anything left to do. So I went back home and I went to sleep. And to me, that was business as usual, you know, house fire, did try to do my best, wasn't able to save a baby, end of story. But when I woke up the next day, it was, I, I wasn't okay. There was nothing about me that was okay. And so I did what I always do to make me feel better. Some people, some people drink, some people gamble, some people watch porn, some people hire a hooker or whatever, I shop. <laughs> and so I went shopping and I bought myself some nice things and I came home and I still felt like rotten. But when I got home, there were some, some men sitting on my front porch who they were from the state fire marshal's office, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, and um, the county sheriff. And they asked if they could come in and ask me about the events of the night prior. And I was really shaken. I was, I was not doing well at that point. And so they told me, and they probably shouldn't have told me, but this was a professional courtesy because they could see how upset I was. They told me it wasn't a baby, okay? His baby cousin was like 24, 25 years old and he shot him. Mm -hmm. He shot him and then he poured gasoline around the first floor of the house and he started the house on fire to conceal his crime while his aunt and uncle were sleeping upstairs. Uh -huh. And so I know it's a rotten story, but it's, there's actually a good ending. So the, the men from the officers and the agents left and, and I was even less okay than I was previous, previously. And, and I just, I couldn't, I kind of pride myself on keeping my shit together and my shit was not together. And so the only thing that I could think of to do, because I don't have family in the area, and my best friend was out of town at a baseball game and I didn't want to wreck his good time at the baseball game. So the only thing I could think of was to call the fire station and see if there's anyone there to talk to. And luckily the person that answered was really smart and he listened to me ugly cry the story. I'm sure he didn't understand most of it because it was very ugly crying. And all he said was just, I need you to pack your shit and come to the station and stay with us. And so I gave him, you know, the whole business of, no, I don't need to do that. I'm fine. And he knew that I needed to. And so he forced the issue. And so I, like a little kid stomping around the house, I packed my stuff. I got in my car and I went to the station and we talked about it and we ate pizza and joked around and I slept there. And I think that that was probably one of the best decisions that I've ever made in my life. But what I realized was I... I was experiencing trauma 
and, and not ever processing it. And this was just the culmination of it. The fact that I couldn't save a baby <laughs> off duty. And so that, although the, probably the worst story of my life was sort of pivotal in me starting getting the process of re realizing that I needed to process my trauma. And then very, very luckily a few years ago, so the, the dates are so sketchy. I'm, I'm old and it's hard for me to remember, but I wanna say it was probably 2017. So around three years ago, uh, a gentleman from a neighboring fire department came and talked to us about peer support. And I didn't know what peer support was, but he had started a peer support program in our state because basically the bottom line was, he said, I didn't become a firefighter to become a miserable, drunk, a-hole, um, but this is where I am now. And so I want people like me who are suffering to be able to get the help they needed or the help they need. And that was just tremendously eye-opening to me because I thought I was the only one. And as it turns out, it's everyone. Everyone feels these terrible feelings and we need to do a better job educating people on the front end. Thank you very much for sharing that, Annette. And I mean, it's interesting to hear like how it all processed through just to that pin pinnacle sort of moment there. And then obviously your process going forward from there. How long do you think this was in terms of yours? You were saying there within like the first year or so you started to feel these sort of symptoms of anger and stuff. Up to, from that point to that pinnacle moment, that story you were telling us there, how long was that in between there? And then, you know, once you started um, getting that peer support and that stuff going on there, how long since has been? So I tell people that roughly I lost a decade or a little more than a decade of my life. And, and by lost, I truly mean lost because I really felt like I had nothing. I was, I was just trudging through day by day trying to check off the days on the calendar and get through life and survive life and now i'm definitely i don't have that attitude anymore because i'm actually panicked um i have 26 books i want to read this year and i have <laughs> all these science projects i want to do and it upsets me every week when i fill my supplement box because i'm like oh my god another week is gone what am i going to do so a decade i lost a decade of my life and i think that's not, that's not an uncommon story <laughs> and i think that's an interesting thing there as well like a lot of people who do go through these um these dark times and stuff as well like it's a, it's a longer period than a lot of people realize and then obviously the back end of it coming out but it's not like oh i've attended one peer support group and suddenly i'm fine you know it's like it's a long process out of it as well and with regards to that then as well coming in from different directions we've talked a lot about the um resilience and mental illness side of things and originally talked about the the four main pillars of what you felt around resilience so that sleep that nutrition that exercise and that as well for obviously firefighters you guys work in shift patterns and i know a lot of firefighters as well have second jobs on the side there you know doing things as well so around more so i'd say the exercise side of things as well what would be your recommendations to firefighters listening to this because obviously it's a lot to balance out, you know, working the shift pack and then doing jobs as well. But we know exercise is going to be good for their overall resilience and health, but also just being fit for the job as well. So what would be your general guidance around like everything they've got going on job-wise? How could they fit that in? That's a really great question. And, and I'll, tell, I'll tell them what I tell everyone, including civilians and police officers. 
you have to make it a priority and you have to make it a plan and you have to figure out what you're giving up in your life to fit it. Cause you can't just say, I'm going to add it. You can't just keep adding, mm -hmm. but the beautiful and elegant aspect uh, that I like to share is the fire profession and, and police work is very sympathetic driven. It is 24 seven, 365, a hundred miles an hour with your hair on fire. And then these men and women leave work and they ride their motorcycles and they skydive and they, I don't know, any, any other adrenaline sport you can think of. But if they would simply dedicate 30 minutes to 60 minutes a day, if they can afford it, to walking, they would be so much further ahead. But they, they get it wrapped up in their head that their exercise program has to be complicated. It's going to take a lot of time. But, but I tell people the five minute walk that you actually do is a hundred times better than the 60 minute workout session that you never complete. Mm -hmm. And so if, if I can help, or I do try to help them figure out how they can fit it logically into their lives and then sort of, um, double, double dip almost because walking is an excellent, of course, ex cardiovascular exercise, but it's also an, a wonderful reset for your autonomic nervous system. So bringing in that parasympathetic tone by just walking. Um, do, do, ideally, do they probably need to be doing more than walking? Yeah, you know, you know they need to be doing strength training. They need to do power training. They need to do anaerobic training, but again, the 30 minute walk that you do is a hundred times better than the perfect program that you never execute. The other thing that I suggest to them is, you know, you, you people are jack of all trades. So most firefighters can fix their car, put in a window, build a deck, they can do it all, mm -hmm. but they're not experts on health and wellness and nutrition. So look for resources or hire a coach or better yet, the department should be hiring a coach to work with the people and, and get their health and wellness on track. That's my best advice to them. Nice. And obviously touched upon a couple of like the obstacles the guys will face. Now, what do you see from in terms of health and wellness programming within the fire service? What do you see are the biggest obstacles or limitations within trying to implement that into the fire service? A lot of times, at least in the United States, we put 25 pounds of rocks in a five pound bag in the fire service. And we try to be all things to all people. So not only are we an all hazards department, for the most part, the response to fire, EMS, hazmat, dive rescue, technical rescue, cats in a tree. We also respond to Boy Scout birthday parties. Uh, you know, now during COVID, the drive-by parades. You know, we put everyone else first, not only as first responders, we put everyone else first, but our departments put everyone else first when they should be putting their personnel first. And so something that I've seen that worked really, really well, and it actually, we integrated at my own department, and there was uh, another one of the firefighters there who's actually, he manages the, the fitness program for us. He's another lieutenant. And he was very adamant about training first thing in the morning and making it a priority. And so he did the legwork, the behind the scenes work. He ran the statistics with, through our program and found that our slowest times were at 
it's foggy now, but I think it was like 3.30 a.m. till 9.30 a.m. or something like that was our slowest block of time. We change shifts at seven o'clock. So it's actually logical for us to come in, check our rigs and do our training from 7.30 to nine. And there was some pushback from the department and actually pushback from the personnel who's gonna wash the rigs, who's gonna clean the toilets. What if somebody doesn't, you know, fold the bath towels? But really those are, those are illogical arguments because you should be taking care of your personnel first. Mm -hmm. Who do I want working on my six month baby in full arrest? I want the best and the brightest and the best trained. And so uh, it'll be three years ago now in January that we push that through and it works really well. We come in in our physical fitness clothes, we do our rig checks and then immediately go to our physical fitness training. And then by nine o'clock we're to be showered and if we have to eat, we eat. And then usually by 9.30 we're on with our day. Of course, if there's a call during that time, all bets are off when we go on the call. But you, as a fire department, you can't just give the lip service of saying, it's important to be healthy and well. You have to give them not only the resources in terms of the equipment, someone to be the expert, but also the time. Yeah. And the time is where everyone falls short. That's awesome advice there. And I know there's a couple of more civilian guys who are working, especially in the US, because your system's a little bit different to us in the UK. So the likes of uh, John Hoffman and Matt Wenning doing some big things there. What would be your advice to any sort of uh, coach approaching a, you know, a fire department to offer their services? You know, what would you say be the first steps they should make and how they should generally structure it? This is a great conversation and I have it probably five times a week with coaches across the country. <laughs> um, okay. The first, and actually this is good. This, I'm going to do a webinar. I've been saying it for three months now and I'm going to do it, but okay. Things to remember about the fire service. It's a hundred years of tradition unimpeded by progress. And so how they've always done things is how they always want things done. But then they also look at their workers' comp injuries and they go, oh my gosh, we're losing millions of dollars. So as a civilian approaching a fire department, first thing that I would say is be prepared for it to be a very slow process. It takes forever, not even forever, it takes five ever. And always make sure that you're not putting all of your, big, your eggs in one basket. And so if you are trying to be a fire department coach, I would be offering proposals to five, six, 10 departments all at once. Worry about it later if you get too many contracts, but it's gonna take you a really long time to get a contract. The next thing I say is if there is someone you know at the department, absolutely try to weaponize that, that relationship, but also know that if that person is a two-year firefighter, they're not gonna have much impact on any decision-making process. So in that case, you might almost be better off approaching the department and either from their website or calling the department. Who you're looking for is the chief or director of training and safety, or if they have a deputy chief of personnel or administration, those are the people that you're looking for because they're generally the people that are decision makers in health and wellness. Some departments have a health and wellness committee, but dealing with a committee rather than a point person is a little bit more difficult. Once you get that person's ear, see if you can get a few minutes of their time to find out from them 
what are your main struggles here at the fire department? And I can tell you what it's gonna be. We're spending a bazillion dollars on workers' comp injuries. Pretty much that's what they're gonna say. And so again, we can't promise mitigating injuries or eliminating injuries, but we can definitely curb the tide on injuries and we can also get people back to work way faster once they've had an injury, of course. So get that person's ear and then do a needs assessment. Like, what do we see as the needs of, of the department? And then how can I solve their problems? And this, this is very important, so underline this and put it in bold. Never give a fire department choices, just give them solutions. If you give them a menu of here's what I could do, it's overwhelming and they'll never pick. Here's the list of what I am going to do for you. Here's what it costs. And then they're gonna say, well, what if you didn't do this part? How much is it? Same price. What if I, you didn't do this part? Same price. Because they're gonna wanna pick and choose things to make it cheaper. But the problem is then that's gonna undermine your success with your program. So here's what I'm gonna do. Here's what it's gonna cost. However, I can't work magic if you can't dedicate time. Mm -hmm. So that goes back to that when are you gonna spend time on this? How are you gonna make it a priority? So go ahead and write your proposal, tell them how much it's gonna cost, and then set your snooze alarm for two years from now because it's <laughs> gonna take forever. But the good news is, or bad news, um, they will have a traumatic injury at some point that will make them remember, oh, shoot, that John guy, like 18 months ago, he gave us a proposal. Let's dig that back out. And then they'll, they'll be all about it. Um, a couple other things to remember. There's a couple studies out there that talk about return on investment. And I'm sorry, I didn't write them down, but they talk about return on investment for a health and wellness coach for fire and police. And it's really actually a pretty good return on investment. But in general, a three to one return on investment is a good number. So if I spent $50,000 on John and I saved $150,000, which isn't even one back injury, that's a great return on investment. In San Antonio Fire, I love this story, they hired a athletic trainer. Is she an athletic trainer or a PT? Now I can't remember. She may be a PT. They, so they have their own PT for San Antonio Fire. And when Dina presented at TSAC a year ago, her return on investment was six to one. Wow. I just talked to her recently and they're publishing a paper, I believe, where her return on invest investment is 10 to one. So there is really good information out there that the return on investment on a health and wellness coach is big. The last thing that I always tell people is get workers comp involved in this aspect. Tell the department that they should ask workers comp if they will uh, reimburse for a certain amount of the contract. So my first contract with my first fire department workers comp, their carrier paid for half of my fee. And it, I mean, it was a huge win for everyone. So those are my big things that I tell everyone. But again, be patient. Everything the fire service moves at a snail's pace. Thank you. And that, that is awesome. That was a really great in-depth story around just, you know, how guys can approach fire service and what to look for as well. I always ask all of our guests, Annette, just like what they're currently doing to, you know, develop themselves from their CPD and stuff like that. So 
Can you just give us a book, a website, or an app recommendation that you found useful for your own development or your own education? Yeah, this, this is a tough one because I try to read a lot, but I think the one that's been the most impactful for me recently is called The Beauty of a Darker Soul. And I cannot remember the author, Josh Mance or something close to that, but it's a wonderful story about trauma and resilience and, and you know, rising like a phoenix. It's a wonderful, easy read. I recommend it to everybody. All right, and that's great. Thank you very much. And obviously, you've given us a lot of great info here. And thank you very much for sharing your own personal story as well. It's been really insightful to listen to. For anyone who's been listening, who wants to get in touch with you or follow you or find out a bit more about you, uh, where can they go to find out about? I have a website, and it is www.firesq. So F-I-R-E-S as in Sam, Q as in Queen, Fitness dot com and then i'm the same across all the platforms uh, fire rescue fitness so instagram and i'm most active on instagram but the other way that you know you may be interested in following me is i've partnered with another person that does very similar thing to what i do and his name is chris morella and he is fourth shift fitness but together we formed a couple of initiatives one is called devote december which is during the month of December, we honor fire and EMS that have committed suicide, but we also provide resources and um, things like that for people that are following the initiative. And then Spring for Change, last year we did it in April, so we'll probably do it in April again. But Spring for Change is all about education with that sleep and nutrition, mindfulness and movement. So although these are geared towards firefighters and firefighter families this is great information for anyone that might be interested so follow devote december on instagram awesome that's great thank you very much i'll make sure i'll pop all those links into our show notes along with your book recommendation as well thank you very much Annette. that has been really really insightful and great to sit down and chat to you finally okay thank you very much for taking the time i really really appreciate it and i hope you have a great day thank you very much and speak to you soon Okay, guys, thank you so much for listening in today. If you enjoyed the content here, please check out our website at monarchhumanperformance.com and sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date with future podcast episodes, articles, and upcoming content, including training programs and live and online workshops.